This week on the SSPX podcast, we'll be sharing the parish mission from St. Vincent de Paul's in Kansas City as it was delivered in 2004. Today, on Passion Tuesday, we'll be hearing from Father Helmut Sleepyades on the topic of sacrifice and offering, seen through the lens of St. Mary Magdalene, St. John, and the Sorrowful Mother. If you would like to hear more parish missions, reflections, conferences, as well as our Crisis in the Church series and Questions with Father series, please visit sspxpodcast.com. And next week, we'll have another series of meditations on the Passion of Our Lord for Holy Week. Now, we'll turn to the Tuesday evening mission from Father Libiates. Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Tonight I'd like to draw nearer to the cross. And I'd like to speak of three persons that we find at the foot of the cross. One is St. Mary Magdalene, another is St. John, and of course the third one is the Sorrowful Mother. And these three figures show us three different kinds of love. We see them all following our blessed Lord. And that took courage. And we only are really prepared to suffer for something that we love. A woman who is giving birth to a child will go through intense agony for the one that she loves. The same woman will spend many hours, sleepless nights, tending that sick child whom she loves with no thought for herself. A man will lay down his life for his family to defend his children and to defend his wife whom he loves. Our Lord himself said, greater love no man has than he who lays down his life for his friends. And here we see three of his friends, in a certain sense, lay down their lives for him. They stay together when everyone else fled. His chosen ones, his apostles, were not there, apart from St. John. One of them had even put him there by his betrayal. We betray someone whom we don't really love. But these three, they stay together because they loved. In the scripture, it says that a threefold or a triple cord cannot be broken or only with difficulty. And here we have three cords of love intertwined staying together. And in Mary Magdalene, St. John, and our Blessed Mother, we see a symbol of three in one, almost like the Trinity, three in one. We see in them reflected a progression of love, a progression and a growth of love. And that's the main theme of tonight's conference, the three loves. Those of us who are beginners in the spiritual life, we have a different kind of love to those who are more advanced. And those who are more advanced have a 
different kind of love to those who are called perfect. The love of a child is not the same as the love of a teenager. And the love of a teenager is still not quite yet the mature love, the deep, strong, immovable love of an adult. It's still fickle. And so too in the spiritual life, there are different loves. We see Mary Magdalene reflecting one kind of love, St. John another, and the Blessed Mother a third. And so too we have either the love of a child, which is very selfish, self-centered. child loves its parents, of course, but is still very egocentric, very immature, loves itself more than others, really. Still loves its parents, yes, but not with a deep, true love. Is our love of God and neighbor like that of a child, immature, self-centered, weak? A deeper love is that of an older child, a teenager. Such a person has already started to see certain truths in life and should, all things being well and equal, and should not have the love of the immature child. The teenager should see what things the mother and father have done for it. Of course, the mother and father, we presuppose, are good and have done good things for the child. And this teenager now is, on reflection, is moved to be more grateful towards the parents, understanding the difficulties and sacrifices the parents have made over many years. But it's still not yet a mature love. The mature love comes only, hopefully, to some it never does, but mature love supposed to come in adulthood. And that love has been tempered and tested and tried by the cross. And that love still stands, like the cross stands. And that's the love to which God calls all of us, not to a selfish love, not to a weak, vacillating love, to a mature love, a love that's unconditional, a love that loves no matter what. And of course, that is the love that Christ shows to us. He loves us no matter what. His love is not conditional. I will only love you if, he says, I will love you always. In Scripture, it tells us if a woman could forget her own offspring, it puts into them words into the mouth of God, I will never forget you. If your sins be like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Unconditional love. He loves no matter what. And love is, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, love is reciprocal. It must be returned. It must be given back. And we are the ones who must return because St. Paul tells us God first loved us and he loved us so much 
that he sent his son to die obediently on the cross in our place. That's unconditional love. And that's the love that he hopes we in our life will attain. And these three levels we can tie into, if you like, both the Trinity and our own progress in the spiritual life. In the beginning, God created out of love. And so this creation and in the beginning reminds us of childhood, of infancy. In the beginning, we were infants. We were children. Then as we grew older, we reached the age of reason, and sin came into our lives. And maybe through childhood and our teenage years, perhaps we sinned. Perhaps we sinned heavily. And so God sent next, because man had sinned, God sent into the world his only begotten son as a victim for those sins. And that son, while he was with us, told us that he would have to go that we couldn't live in the age of Christ forever. He had to go, and his father would send somebody else, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, whom we call the Spirit of love, enkindle in us the Spirit of thy love. We call him the Spirit of love. And that love, for God is love, as St. John says, that love wants to bring us out of that sin from which Christ redeemed us to renew our love, even better than a childlike innocent love, to renew our love of God. And that's akin to maturity. And so there we have the three ways of the spiritual life, the way of beginners, the way of the proficient, and the way of the perfect. And we have to pass through these ways. Like you have to, you can't be born a teenager. You can't be born an adult. You can't go from childhood to adulthood. You have to go through all three stages. And so tonight we find ourselves in perhaps one of those three stages. Perhaps we're beginners with a beginner's love. Perhaps we're proficient with the love of those who have made progress. Or perhaps, unlikely though, perhaps we're amongst the perfect, where our love of God is just perfect. Where are we? Where are we? How old are we? How many years have we spent on this earth? And has our love of God really grown? Are we 80-year-old infants? 
Are we 80-year-old infants? Where are we in our love of God? He gives himself out of love to us, if we want, day in, day out, in Holy Communion every day. We come at least every Sunday to receive him in the sacrament of love, in the Eucharist. And our hearts, where are they? Where is my love of God? In the early days of the church, it was said of the Christians, look how these Christians love one another. Look how these Christians love one another. If a neutral observer was to walk into your home, could he, would he say the same thing? If a neutral observer was to walk into our parish and observe how we interact amongst ourselves in the parish, could he say, look how these Christians love one another? Or would it be, as Scripture tells us, that in the end times, the charity of many will have grown cold? Where are we with our love of God? We see here those three loves. Mary Magdalene, Saint John, and the Blessed Virgin. Mary Magdalene, of course, represents the incipient love, the beginner's love, the lowly love, because her record was one of a lowly love, love of sin. St. John represents the middle love, the love of someone who has progressed. He, in fact, was, as Scripture tells us, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was favored by Jesus. He was loved especially by him. He had the privilege of being with Peter and James, the other two favored ones out of the three, on the mount for the transfiguration. They were the three privileged ones to witness the resurrection of Jair's daughter. And they were the three called to go with him into Gethsemane. He was John, our Lord's confidant. Our Lord told him and no one else whom the traitor was, that it would be Judas. Our Lord entrusted the preparation of the Last Supper to him and Peter. When he rose from the dead, Peter and he were the first to the tomb. St. John was the first there. And then after Jesus' ascension, all the other apostles were martyred, except for St. John. They tried to kill him. They put him in a vat of burning oil, but he came out looking younger than his hundred years was when he went in. He was favored specially by God. And then the one who was favored above all, the mother of God, the Virgin Mary, who committed no sin. John had sinned. Mary Magdalene had sinned, even worse than John. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, had not sinned.
And so we have there these three loves. These three loves. But there are not only three loves there on Calvary. There are three hatreds as well. And varying degrees. The deepest hatred we see amongst the crowd. The high priests, the crowd, the Roman soldiers. They had no grace in their souls. They were totally against Christ. And they sought nothing from him. They were hardened in their sin. Then we see, either side of Christ, two other examples of hatred of God. Because if we sin, we hate God. And here were two sinners. The bad thief and the good thief. And neither of them had the grace of God. The bad thief was partially for Christ, but not because he thought Christ would deserve worship or anything like that. He was partially for Christ because he wanted something out of him. He was interested in his own skin. If you're who they say they are, get us out of this. He was only thinking of himself not really of Christ. And he too had no grace. But he had some recourse to Christ, but it wasn't good enough. He wasn't for the right reasons. He was out of self-interest. And then we see the good thief, who too has no grace, who too is in a state of mortal sin, but he defends Christ. He defends Christ and he accepts the suffering that he's receiving. Whereas a bad thief didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to do any penance for his wrong. He wanted out. But the good thief defends Christ and acknowledges his guilt. We are guilty, he says. We deserve what we are getting. And then he has recourse to Christ. He asks something of him. And it's not the salvation of his body. It's not that he take him off the cross. He says, no, leave me on the cross. I deserve this. But please, please, when you come into your kingdom, please remember me. And he will get the grace of God. And so of those three hatreds, one comes through. So we have those three loves, those three hatreds. And we see that it is love that overcomes hatred. If we ruminate and forage amongst the writings of those early fathers of the church, as they call them, and look at tradition, we see a tradition that says that it was the love of the Virgin Mary that brought about the change in the good thief. 
They tell us that when Jesus was a babe and Herod, out of his hatred, wanted to kill Jesus, they fled, of course, to Egypt. And on the way to Egypt, they were ambushed by robbers. And the robbers wanted to kill the Holy Family. But one amongst them, and it happened to be the leader, said, no, spare them. And so they were taken to the robbers' camp and there given some hospitality overnight before they were released. It so happened that this robber's son, who was a baby at the time, was a leper. Was a leper. That's a symbol of, of sin, leprosy. He was a leper. And the Blessed Virgin washed the infant Jesus in a basin of water. And afterwards, the robber's wife took her leprous child and washed him in the water. And of course, you guessed it. The baby was healed. The baby was healed. An act of love by the robber brought about a great mercy for his son healing of a physical disease. The next time Jesus saw that baby was on Calvary. That baby was now a grown man, a robber, a thief, just like his father, like father, like son. And that thief was hanging alongside him on the cross. And by divine grace, Mary knew. And so he told that Mary, by her prayers, obtained the conversion of the thief on the cross. How far love can go over many years, unforgotten. The robber spared Jesus' life. Mary spares his son's life on the cross, his eternal life. The power of love. Do we want that kind of love? Love does not come easily. Love is painful. The more we love, the more we must suffer. God loved us so much. He suffered so much. Are we prepared to go with him? He tells us, if you wish to go to heaven, if you wish to be my disciple, take up your cross daily and follow me.
and follow me to the end, like Mary Magdalene, like St. John, like a Blessed Virgin Mary. And we are told by St. Paul that whatever cross we have to take up every day, it will not be one that will crush us because God will give us the grace we need to carry our cross. But to carry the cross, we need love. It is impossible to carry the cross without love. And so we have to grow in that love. And as we grow in that love, the cross will grow with us, like your children. When your child is born, you can pick him up with your little finger. A few months later, there are a few more pounds. A year or two later, there are many more pounds. But as we carry the child, we grow stronger because we're carrying the child every day and we don't seem to feel the increase of the weight. And so too it is with the cross. If we pick up our cross every day out of love of God, the cross will never seem heavy. But if we fall out of love, the cross will be unbearable. The cross will be unbearable. And so, it is the degree of love that we have that will help us carry that cross, which we all have to carry. He even tells us in Matthew, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's why the imitation of Christ says, there are many who want the consolations of Christ, but few who want his trials. Many will follow him to the banquet table, but few will drink the chalice of his passion. Are we like that, full of self-interest? If we are, then we like Mary Magdalene. When she first grew to love Christ, it was out of self-interest. Her life depended on it. She was about to be stoned to death. She was about to lose her life. And she found herself in the right place at the right time. She bumped into Jesus. And Jesus said to the Jews, he said, let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. And they all realized that they were sinners themselves. And so one by one, they released the stones. They say he was riding in the sand some spiritual fathers say that he was writing her sins in the sand and the gusts of wind were just to deface them, efface them and blow them away. 
And he turns to Mary and he says to her, Now, go. Go and sin no more. And Mary took those words to heart. She sinned in that way no more. That was the beginning of love. Brought about by self-interest, but the seed was planted. And so she followed Christ, and she grew in love. And she did what we have to do as beginners. She wept over her past sins. Those who are beginners in the spiritual life, the first thing they have to do when they get the grace of God is to weep over their past sins and do penance for them. That's what a beginner's love should have. Those are the fruits, indications of the sinner's love. If we have no tears for our sins, if we do no penance for our sins, it is to be doubted that we even have the love of a beginner. And it is said by some spiritual writers that most souls in the world, in the world, not saying here, most souls in the world are not even beginners, are not even beginners, because they have no real sorrow for their sins, have no, and they don't weep for their sins and do no penance for their sins, and so that's not really a love, it's a fake, it's a fake, and so have we at least done that, are we there? I know one spiritual writer who said that one of the greatest virtues we could have is the virtue of compunction. Compunction means an abiding, everlasting sorrow for sin. We remember our past all the time. And so we stay humble and we do penance and we weep for our sins. That's the love of a beginner. And then to try and stay away from sin. If we truly love Christ with the love of a beginner, we stay away from sin like Mary did. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And to help us sin no more, we practice mortification. Mortification mortis facere to kill to make dead. And what do we kill? We kill our passions. We kill our inclinations for evil. We kill temptation when it comes along. If we have a love of a beginner, that's what we should be doing. Penance for our sins, weeping for our sins, trying to avoid sin, fighting the battle against temptation, and killing our passions by saying no to our inclinations and desires. And then we look at John. John is a symbol of those in the way of proficience, who are making progress in the spiritual life. Those people no longer just avoid mortal sin, as beginners do, but they also strive to avoid venial sin, deliberate venial sin. 
They don't want anything to do with it. They battle it. They fight it. And also now, instead of just fighting temptation, which they will always do, they add to their armory now, they add to their armory a desire, a desire for perfection and virtue. They want to practice virtues. And so those who reach that middle stage in the spiritual life methodically plan to practice virtue. Are we doing that? Do we have any virtue really that we are striving to obtain? Or are we just winging it, as they say? Fly by night. Practice a virtue when we have to, but not really after anything. And also in this middle state of love, we start to practice a truer love. There's still a lot of self mixed in, as with beginners, but not as much. There's a lot of self mixed in. But now we try to practice a truer love. And what is that truer love? But a union of wills with God. That is what love is. Love is a union of wills. Two people who love each other want the same goals in life. You don't marry a person with opposite goals to yours. You know it's going to be a shipwreck before you start. If you love somebody, if you married somebody, you married them because you had similar goals in life, similar beliefs, similar interests, similar whatever. And so love is a union of wills, wanting the same thing. And if we love God, and as we grow in our love of God, we want what God wants. It's no longer what I want. We enter a little bit into the struggle of our Lord in his agony in the garden. Father, if it be possible, take this chalice away from me. But then, because he loves his father, he adds, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And that is the struggle of those who are growing in love. They understand that they've been selfish when they were younger, or at least younger in the spiritual life. And now they want to draw closer to God. But to draw closer to God means accepting his will in all things. And that's where the struggle starts. That's where our agony in the garden starts. It's mental, first of all. We have to overcome the mental block. It's fine telling him we love him in our prayers, but love is not proven by words. Love is proven by action. Our Lord would say, these people honor me with their lips. They tell me I love you, Lord. People honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their will, so to speak, their will, their heart is far from them, from him. Again, we think of our Lord saying in the scripture, when he's damning, 
some people and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name, Lord? Did we not even perform miracles in your name? Why are you doing this? And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I will? And so, no matter what we do, we could even perform miracles. If we don't do his will, we don't love him. And like he damns them there in scripture, he will damn us because we don't do his will. St. Paul tells us the same thing. If I have faith to move mountains, yet have not charity, it serves me nothing. A miracle worker without charity serves nothing. God might well use anybody to perform a miracle, even someone who's unbaptized even. But if he has not charity, he will serve him nothing, miracle or not. And then St. Paul says, if I give all I have to the poor and have not charity, it profits me nothing. And he adds, if I have all knowledge and can speak with tongues, tongues of angels, and have not charity, it profits me nothing. No matter how eloquent, or how clever, or how powerful, or influential, if I have not charity, it profits me nothing. If I give my body to be burned, apparent martyrdom, if I give my body to be burned but have not charity, it profits me nothing. Nothing. And St. Paul will tell us the will of God is your sanctification. God's will is your sanctification. And so, how do we react to God's will every day? God's will is manifest in many ways. By the laws of the church, by the Ten Commandments, how do we keep those laws? How do we keep them? God's will is manifested to us by our superiors, be it a boss at work, be it your husband at home, be it your parent, be it your teacher, be it your principal, be it your spiritual director, confessor, whoever. God manifests his will through legitimate authority. How do we react to the will of God? God shows his will by the circumstances in the world, by his providence, the wars that happen, the diseases that come, the famine, the whatever else it might be. God shows his will in these ways. How do we react to God's will. The car that won't start, the crasher involved in, the baby that you lose, 
whatever it might be, that's a manifestation of God's will. How do we react to the will of God? And how we react will show the degree of love that we have. If we're always complaining, if we're always moaning, if we're always dissatisfied, whinging, whining, groaning, griping, our love is almost non-existent. But if we can thank God for all that happens to us, good and evil, then our love is great. Then our love is great. And ultimately, the spiritual life is a life of love. It's a life of love. Something the devil doesn't know. He doesn't know what it's like to love. Love is so powerful that it can even save souls. It can even save souls. Someone dying in a state of mortal sin, if they make a perfect act of contrition out of a deep love of God, grace will be restored to their souls. Of Mary Magdalene, we see her weeping at our Lord's feet and washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And people resented that and knew who she was and were muttering and maybe judging her in their minds. And what was the final verdict that Jesus gave? Much is forgiven her. Because she has loved much. St. Peter learned that lesson. And when he wrote his epistle, he puts in there these words. Charity covers a multitude of sins. Charity covers a multitude of sins. Of course, we can pay like the good thief if we match up. You know, we can get on the cross there and say, nail me to it, I'll take it. Sure, we can do it that way, but there's an easier way. There's an easier way. And that is to love much. To love much. Our Lord himself tells us it's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God with your whole heart, not part of it, with thy whole mind thy whole strength, thy whole soul. He's a jealous God, he says. He doesn't want division. He doesn't want part-time love. He wants total love. And if we can't achieve it here, then we go to purgatory where our love gets heated up a little bit. And we have to go the other way. He wants a whole love, a total love. And then he tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Lord knows we love ourselves. But our neighbor comes pretty much a long way down the line. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. So much that they should say, as they said in the early days of the church, look how these Christians love one another. Why can't we repeat what was once done? And so examine yourself upon your love. How deep is your love? How united to God's will are you? Because that's the ultimate test of your love. And you see God's will every day, maybe a thousand times a day or more. How are you reacting to your day? How are you reacting to things that go on around you? That love is of prime importance. To sum up, let us turn to Scripture. And our Lord tells us in Matthew, Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment that should be kept. And the second is like to this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Nothing greater than those two. How are we doing in that regard? Without it, we are nothing. St. Paul tells us, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. If I should have prophecy and should know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I should have all faith so I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And I should distribute all my goods to feed the poor, and I should give them my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And that's why he says in the Colossians, but above all these things, have charity. And this charity must respond to needs. St. John, this apostle of love, in his epistle writes, in this we have known the charity of God, because he has laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He that has substance of this world and shall see his brother in need and shall shut up his bowels from him, how does the charity of God abide in him? My little children, there is not love in word nor in tongue, but in deed, meaning action, in deed and in truth. And so we have something that others don't have. We have faith, and most people don't, and we are not giving to those who don't have faith. We are selfishly, in that first degree of love, we are selfishly keeping it to ourselves, and we are not sharing our faith. And our Lord in the Last Supper speaks to us, saying, a new commandment I give to you that you will love one another as I have loved you. By this shall men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, 
he'll say in the Sermon on the Mount, even thieves and robbers do good to them whom they love. But true love means to love the enemy also. It means to love those we don't even know. Are we loving in that way? I don't doubt we are loving those who love us. I don't doubt we love our family members. I don't doubt we love some of our parishioners. But are we loving as we ought to love? Unconditionally and everyone. And sharing what we have with them. That's what our Lord wants. And that's why he says to Mary Magdalene, Wherefore I say to thee, Many sins are forgiven her, because she has loved much. But to whom less is forgiven, he loves less. Now how much has God forgiven you? What's your debt? What should you do for others? And so Peter will say, But before all things, have a constant mutual charity among yourselves. For charity covers a multitude of sins. And so let us ask these three lovers at the foot of the cross, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saint John, and Mary Magdalene, let's ask them to implant in our hearts the love that Christ so dearly wants to see there. And to finish, I'll read this extract from the Imitation of Christ. It's almost more passionate, really, than St. Paul's so-called litany of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an imitation on charity and love. Love is an excellent thing, a very great blessing. It makes every difficulty easy and bears wrongs calmly. For it bears a burden without being weighted and renders sweet all that is bitter. The noble love of Jesus spurs to great deeds and excites longing for that which is more perfect, not satisfied with mediocrity. Love tends upwards. It will not be held down by anything low. Love wishes to be free and separated from all worldly things. Nothing is sweeter than love. Nothing stronger or higher or wider. Nothing is more pleasant, nothing fuller, and nothing better in heaven or on earth. For love is born of God and cannot rest until it finds God. One who is in love flies, runs, rejoices, he is free, not bound. He gives all for all and possesses all in all who is God. 
Love often knows no limits, but overflows all bounds. Love feels no burdens, thinks nothing of troubles, attempts more than it is able, and does not plead impossibility because it believes that it may and can do all things. For this reason, it is able to do all, performing and effecting much where he who does not love fails and falls. Love is watchful. Sleeping, it does not slumber. Wearied, it is not tired. Pressed, it is not straightened. Alarmed, it is not confused. But like a living flame, a burning torch, it forces its way upwards and passes unharmed through every obstacle. Because it loves. Love is swift, sincere, kind, and pleasant. Love is strong, patient, faithful, prudent, long-suffering, and manly. Love is never self-seeking, for in whatever a person seeks himself, there he will fall from love. Love is circumspect, humble and upright. It is neither soft nor light, nor intent upon vain, empty things. It is sober and chaste, firm and quiet, guarded in all its senses. Love is subject and obedient to superiors. He who is not ready to suffer all things and to stand resigned to the will of the beloved is not worthy to be called a lover. A lover must embrace willingly all that is difficult and bitter for the sake of the beloved. He should not turn away from him because of adversity. If a man loves, he will know the sound of this voice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.